this is not a curse. How can you say that? You're killing people. No, I'm killing turtles. We've come now finally to the end. This is not the end of Evangelion, it's the end of the Heisei Gamer trilogy. And my plan for a cold open was to try and sing Taylor Swift's anti-hero and make it being about a giant tentacle monster. Um, <laughs> I did not have enough time to workshop that idea uh -huh. into a way that I like, but uh, it's, it's me, hi, uh, I'm always killing your family. There we um, go. <laughs> uh, see, the, the musical accompaniment that I was thinking of doing for, for this episode was, uh, you know, sight unseen. I had not seen this movie yet, but I kept getting Panama by Van Halen stuck in my head, but just what? replacing it with Gamera. There is a certain element of leaning down and easing the seat back in the third one. Um, maybe not for good reason. Right. Yeah. Um, Wait, doesn't it open in Panama? No, it opens in like, it, like the South Peru, Pacific. I think? Something. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's definitely in, in Latin America, but, uh, that would have been great. Gamera in Panama. Yeah. Um, that, <laughs> that's just terrific. One thing I was trying to figure out, you know, of course, the, throughout the movie, there's all of the, the, the return of Gauss across the world. I was trying to figure out kind of per our conversation in a previous episode about whether or not they were all Pacific incidents, you know, but no, there is one that takes place over Egypt. So it is, it is not confined just to the Pacific ocean. Right. In the, in this one, right? Like, and that is sort of like the, the backline threat of all of it is, mm -hmm. is, is that like, this is, you know, it's the end of the world. Here's how's this. In our last episode, we talked about how Gamera 2 Attack of Legion has um, a lot of echoes to pieces of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Right? Intentionally. Gamera 3 is the book of Revelation. <laughs> like, right. al almost pointedly. So it's like, here's how the world ends. Here's oh. the weird monsters. Yeah. Well, that adds like that kind of explains one of the few characters that I, I really didn't understand what they were doing there in this in the plot that that adds like, oh, huh, cool. OK, OK, <laughs> yeah, I, that the, the pieces are kind of falling together a bit for me. OK, well, well we're, we're hanging loose, but give me mm -hmm. I've seen this movie many times. I right. actually saw this movie before Gamera, too, when I was a kid. Interesting. I saw this movie right after it came out. In of in dubious legal capacity, <laughs> at a con at a convention, I don't know who was allowed to like you know put these VHS tapes with not super accurate subtitles into uh, the TV projector machines, but that's how I saw it, and so mm. I have a very old relationship with this movie. My feelings on it have waxed, waned, waxed, waned many times, but I'd love to get your take as a noob on it. Okay, man, it, it's a tricky movie. I think this is the one that I, I'm going to have the hardest time figuring out exactly how I feel about it. It's interesting that you mentioned seeing it directly or not directly, but like 
prior to seeing the second movie, because in a lot of ways I feel like <clears throat> this movie just kind of skips over attack of Legion for the most part. The, the more charitable way of saying that is that this one ties itself back to the first Gamera movie very aggressively and pointedly and, and not just in, you know, bringing back more of the human characters from the first movie, but uh, you know, bringing back the Gauss as the, the primary antagonist early, at least initially, um, or at least a, you know, an agent of chaos, a, a factor in the story in a way that obviously they weren't an attack of, of Legion, but even some of the, the more, you know, filmmaking, the, the, the visual references are also there to the original movie as well. And that's, it, it also feels like it is a, a distinct response though, on a stylistic level to attack of Legion, you know, even though the plot is is much more related to uh guardian of the universe the way that we talked about and and i in particular praised the sort of anti or sort of superhuman scale of the storytelling on uh in attack of legion the way that the human characters are kind of reduced to just humanity uh as opposed to distinct individual people this one goes the the hard opposite direction and is really uh a movie about humans, like individual humans in the world of Gamera. And I really liked how just fundamentally different that made the movie feel than the other two. And I, mm-hmm. I think that it makes the, the trilogy as a whole feel like a really beautiful self-contained arc where each, each third of the story, each part of the triptych has its own distinct flavor and message and feel to it while also feeling like, this movie kind of bit off a bit more than it chewed for me in terms of the plot. Uh, I, I kind of felt like this is the one that had a lot on its, on its mind and didn't necessarily explain all of it to me clearly, but the stuff that it did ring out the emotional aspects, the sort of the, the groundedness in, in human uh, relationships to each other, and all of that felt um, like a really powerful way of ending this series. And I really respect how unique this one is, especially compared to the previous two. Mm-hmm. Big swings. Yeah. This is, this is a movie that takes like it really shot for the moon. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways it lands super hard. And in some ways I think it does miss. When I first saw this movie, when I, I had to be what? 12. Mm-hmm. 13 young. I was young when I first saw it and it was, and it was new. I thought this was the best Kaiju movie ever made a few years ago, not even a few years ago, but like, I think about a year ago when, when the ADV, when the arrow Blu-rays of all the Heisei Gamera's came out and I got it and I revisited them, which is the versions I'm watching now. I did a big rewatch of all three. Mm-hmm. And the thing I was struck by on the rewatch was, and I think I've said this before, how much I loved the first one more than I remembered. Uh-huh. And, and this one had really soured for me in a lot of ways. But now as we, I've rewatched it prepping for this podcast, it kind of bounced back a little mm-hmm. bit. That's probably too linear um, in a way to like graph it. So here, here's what I want to say. The, I think the biggest strength of the first Gamera movie is the characters. Mm-hmm. And this one has is even more care even more than the first one. It is about like a single person and the way that they relate to a giant monster mm-hmm. and they're two giant monsters actually. And like their relationship is 
oppositional, right? right. Yeah. That's what's, and, and that's why I, I think about like the idea of an anti-hero. This is a very anti-hero movie. Like it's, it's about Ayana is, is the anti-Asagi, right? right. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, a, it's a clear shadow kind of situation, you know, again, like this movie is, that's, that's one of the things that I feel like it is really trying to drill down on in relation to the first movie is like, show the opposite side of the same coin, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I like that about it. I think the, the love storyness of it is maybe a bit trite, you're talking about with like the other, the other kid from the, uh, from the small yeah. town. Yeah. Um, I, I have a different kind of reading of that. I, I get what you mean. And I'm kind of glad that it doesn't go more in that direction because I would agree mm. that that would be really corny, but I think that there's some other stuff going on there with that character's motivations and his relationship to Ayana's motivations that feels pretty poetic to me in a really, in a really powerful way. Mm-hmm. It's moving. I think yeah. it is. I think it is. And I think, I think Ayana is a really moving character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that actress does a lot with, there's not a ton on the page. Yeah. Yeah. But she's, and, and, and she's mostly deadpanning it. Right. Uh, when I think of like the most powerful moments with that character, it is kind of the, the lead up to the climax where, you know, she sort of goes you know, completely deadpan Mm -hmm. um, while the other characters are kind of reacting in horror. It kind of reminded me a bit of like Carrie, you know, there's, there's a bit of that here, this kind of like, like ecstatic explosion of violence, you know, teen girl uh, trying to gain power and unlocking evil in some way. Um, Yes. I think that this is the one movie that of the three that I feel like kind of deserves a cult audience outside of the kaiju fandom because of its uh place in this kind of like teen uh supernatural like specifically teen girls seeking out like supernatural power and it kind of blowing up in her face that feels like i don't know it's a it's a sort of story that i feel like it is it you know like it could it can fall in line with the kind of jennifer jennifer's bodies and the craft yes. of the world the craft you know? Yes. And it does. It, it's even, even being from that time, being that like directly pre turn of the millennium, mm-hmm. like it does sort of have like, there's a Molgothness to this movie. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It, it taps into the sort of like uh teen resentment and nihilism, you know, but instead of kind of placing the blame on, well, it kind of, we'll have to chew over the video game stuff at some point in this conversation, but what I like is instead of just saying like, Oh, it's, it's teenage angst. It's, you know, suburban ennui. It's like, no, it's like terrorism is what causes this. You know? Right. Like, uh, not to like lay out all of my, like, I wonder, you know, my comparisons to Western films all out on the table, but do you think Zack Snyder has seen this movie? I think Zack Snyder has seen, it's very possible that Zack Snyder has seen this movie. Cause it's all, the beginning is a lot like the beginning of Batman versus Superman. Dawn of I, I've, I've thought that too. Let me throw out someone else who I think has seen this movie. And mm-hmm. can I hard fork this conversation for one second? Please. Yeah. We'll, we'll loop back around. Yeah. I am convinced Jordan Peele has seen this movie. Ooh. And let me tell you exactly why. 
the we haven't we haven't brought her him they use him but i think iris is a is like a feminine i don't know yeah we haven't well brought, I, like, ayana says says him in regards to him iris, so right let's call iris a, a he even though like iris seems like a feminine monster to me in some way mm-hmm. maybe that's just the flowiness right. of iris which i right? I, I think is where you're heading with the jordan peele thing if i had to guess this is exactly where i'm going the shot of when iris first flies and you mm. can see flying iris i when i first saw okay spoilers ahead to if you haven't seen nope fast forward to insert a timestamp. if you if you've seen nope <laughs> When the alien assumes it's like evolved form, mm-hmm. I, th- I would need to put the shots next to one another, but I think like it's almost a direct homage, um, in a movie right. that already has direct homages to Japanese pop culture in it. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I was, I wasn't sold. And then I saw the bike slide. I'm like, if Jordan Peele's seen Akira and Jordan Peele's a horror nerd, Jordan Peele has seen Gamera three. Right. Like, <laughs> That's what I think. I I saw that shot and I was like, motherfucking Iris. You made Iris into a plastic bag. You <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> or into a, a giant camera, which is, you know, the, the metaphor that I think he's working for. But uh, uh both. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I could, I <laughs> don't get me started on Nope, but, um, no, I think you're right. Like this movie, uh, again, it's this kind of thing where, you know, we, in the episode one for this Gamera trilogy that we did, we talked about Pacific Rim as like another Western kaiju movie, uh, that clearly was borrowing some moves from Gamera one. So it's cool to see like, oh, this movie, these movies, despite not having the sort of name brand recognition of your Godzilla's have been just as influential on the way that this form has been translated even outside of Japan um, as, you know, the original Gojira has been, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think this trilogy in general has like a real heads, no Mm -hmm. feel to it. I'm certain Quentin Tarantino has seen them. There's some other people who I bet at least know about this movie who are influential on the world stage that maybe will kick down the curb. Although, like, there is one thing, listeners, that I've been wanting to talk about for the entire time we've been talking about Gamera, and we have put off, and it will not go on. It will not go unmentioned in this episode. So we we have to finally um, talk about the Seagal in the room. Are we doing it now? Okay, we'll do it now. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, let's just get it out of the way. Yeah, let's get it out of the way. Okay, because right, we talked about like. We've already brought up Itsagi, who does return in this movie yet again, and it right. didn't get remarked upon the first few times. But now that this movie is, you know, it, it uh, comes out a few years later, she's a bit older. This is the first time I was like, oh, yeah, I, I see it now. You can see um, it in her face, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, Ayaka Fujitani, who plays Asagi. Asagi, like, the main character of this trilogy, right? right? And Camera's like, translator, you, you know, the girl that is tied to the guardian of the universe, et cetera, et cetera. S- Speaker for the turtles mm-hmm. is there's, there's my one Orson Scott card oblique reference. Um, <laughs> I, I thought you were going with Dr. Seuss there. I oh, that's it. Turtles. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> my name is Asagi. I speak for the turtle. Do not pollute. Do not right. pollute. Oh, there is a lot of Lorax in this fucking <laughs> trilogy actually. <laughs> um, right. So Ayako Fujitani who plays Asagi Gamera one was her first film uh, appearance ever mm-hmm. is Steven Seagal's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> That's so wild. <laughs> it is 
it is pretty wild. It's so funny. Um, I can't, it's just like, what? What? <laughs> her, and given Steven Seagal's relationship to Vladimir Putin, I wonder if Putin's seen Gamma Earth 3. Uh, when he turns off all the bad news about the Donbass region, is he like, man, what's Iris up to? Um, I hope not. Yeah. What's, what's your relationship to Steven Seagal? Like, what do you make of how, like how, cause I'm trying to imagine someone who's like maybe is younger than us and didn't watch like whatever movie just happened to be on TV in like 2002 and like, therefore doesn't know who Steven Seagal is. Like, how do you explain Steven Seagal to a zoomer? So I guess the way you explain Steven Seagal is like, you say like in the eighties, there was this rash of white dude does martial arts movies Mm -hmm. and they're like kind of edgy, but not too edgy kind of trashy, but fun. Right. There were a lot of, and, and like, that phenomenon minted a lot of stars, mm-hmm. but minor stars, right? Right. Like, um, wh- who's like the biggest name to come out of this? Like Jean Claude Van Damme. E- that depends on if you call. Well, let's le- um, let's call Sylvester Stallone separate, right? Because he's not doing martial arts. That's old school American like action hero stuff. But it's the same same sort of in the umbrella genre of like beefcake 80s action movies right there's a smaller umbrella that contains white guys doing martial arts martial arts right so we're we're going to take arnold and sly out of it one because their careers predate and Mm -hmm. two because they're not really in the martial arts vein of it even though like you cannot talk about this phenomenon without predator and rambo rambo blood yeah this rambo too more than first blood but yeah yeah uh this is like kind of the the other legacy here is the Chuck Norris, you know, as like the guy that fought the white guy that fought Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, you know, he's the slightly, even slightly classier version, but I guess out of that, (laughs) but barely, uh, but of, of those, I think the breakout you get is, yeah. Jean-Claude Van Damme, the man who does the splits, Mm -hmm. JCVD, uh, the muscles from Brussels, the muscles from Brussels, uh, a man who, uh, while being a total piece of shit, at least seems kind of self-aware about like his place in pop culture and made double team, which is a legitimately fascinating movie that anyone who likes weird action movies from the nineties, like just needs to seek out like Dennis Rodman's in it. Dennis right. Rodman rides a motorcycle that has the same colors as unit one from Evangelion. Oh my God. Uh, I haven't <laughs> thought about that. It's sick as hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think out of, out of those people, uh, JCVD comes out sort of on top. And then Steven Seagal is like the puffy, sweaty, less good version of Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. I guess you, but weirdly is more legit in part because he spends a lot of time in Asia and married a professional Aikido master. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to camera. (laughs) Yes. That Aikido masters Miyako Fujitani and their daughter together is, is Ayako Faith Fujitani. (laughs) It's worth noting. I think also that like Fujitani is a, I think a respected author. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in her own right, separate from her acting career and has even deeper, uh, n- nerd, edgy millennial nerd, uh, cred. She 
did a movie with Hideaki Anno? Really? That I've never seen. Yeah, she and Hideaki Anno co-adapted her novella Tohumiyu, Tohuimu, I can't, it, Flea Dream, mm-hmm. uh, into a movie called Shiki Jitsu. Um, she did it right after this. It's the first uh, movie that Studio Ghibli related that uh, created that isn't animated, which is weird. I didn't even know that was a thing. Wow, huh. And she stars in it. All of which is to say... Steven Seagal has definitely seen Evangelion like (laughs) that. I know if, if all of this is true, she, can you imagine Hidakiano and Steven Seagal, like trying to have a beer together? Oh man, that makes me just like so uncomfortable. Like I I feel like Steven Seagal is the final boss of like, white guy where you're like why are you into this shit you know? right <laughs> he, he, he's like the final boss weeby strange like orientalizing you know martial like it, it's just like he gives off the worst vibes in the universe steven seagal how and, often when we're doing this podcast do you think to yourself how to be not like steven seagal yeah how do i not like end up like that dude is a a, a very good uh barometer to keep to oneself there you go. <laughs> Which, you know, I can't even imagine what sort of weird bullshit he and Hideaki Anno would talk about because Anno is such a, like, seems like such a strange individual himself, but they seem strange in, like, diametrically opposed ways in their, like, the way that they carry themselves. So it's just like, what what goes on here? <laughs> Maybe talking about World War II boats. I could right. see Steven Seagal being like into, maybe they make models yeah, They just together. go full history, history channel dad. And you know, right. Yeah, that, there you go. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> Fujitani also did a short film with Park Chan-wook. Oh, okay. Interesting. She wrote it, not starred in. That's an, another interesting point of comparison. Cause I did think a lot about like South Korean revenge movies while watching this movie. Uh, because this is a revenge movie, you know, uh, it is a movie about, you know, the cycle of violence and, uh, you know, how it ultimately can be broken through the forgiveness of a turtle. Mm, through the forgiveness of a turtle, through your your uh, boyfriend, not boyfriend, throwing an antique. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if that really did anything. <laughs> it seemed to not really help at all. Well, I think, okay. We're skipping to the end. My interpretation is that like the, like he, like I like this moment of like him, like with the knife, like do fucking something, Mm -hmm. right? Like (laughs) please do something ancient weapon that looks absolutely worthless. (laughs) Throws it at Iris. And I remember the dread, even as like, like a young, like pubescent child watching him throw the knife and be like, if this knife like kills the Kaiju, this is the worst movie ever made. Like right. that is the worst directorial decision that could happen. Instead of just like bounces off of Iris's armor and kind of, it, it cuts her in the face, right? Yeah. It's a real light touch, but just enough to, I, I see what you're saying. It kind of like breaks the spell. And then that's the moment where she's able to be self-reflective and kind of realize that something horribly wrong has happened. Right. It snaps, it snaps her out of the, like her weird, iris induced trance and finally gets her into this like state of mind where she can be like oh i have participated and encouraged violence against mm-hmm. human beings like kind of a lot of it 
Yeah, um, like way more than well. So we should talk about this because I feel like you know we brought up that Ayana is sort of the uh, the dark mirror of Etsagi, uh, right? Both in that her relationship with Gamera is one of hatred because Gamera is responsible for the death of her family, mm-hmm. um, and also that she has this kind of very different relationship with a very different kaiju. You know, like. The Iris Ayana relationship is a is itself a dark inversion of the Atsagi Gamera relationship, right? Right, totally. Well, okay. Here's where I was going to go with that. Sure. The big difference is is that her relationship with Iris is intimate. I'm picking that word very specifically. Yes. The, the, the borderline hentai sequences in this film are difficult to cope with. Although I do think kind of necessary for the plot. I I agree that they're a hundred percent necessary to the plot and to the themes. Um, Right. Yeah. So is there perhaps a good uh, jumping off point from there is that, uh, you know, we mentioned that like, Oh, some of the people that made some of these movies definitely watched Ava. The people that made this movie definitely did. Uh, oh, in for addition sure. to working on it, you know, right. Um, this is one that, this is another movie that feels, uh, like definitively in a post Ava world and not just in the sort of tonal and sort of broader thematic stuff that we mentioned with attack, uh, attack of Legion, but in its filmmaking style and subject matter, this is actually a, a post end of Evangelion movie, you know, totally. rather than just a post Evangelion movie. I, I'm not, I wasn't there during the production, obviously, but I am fairly certain that there were conference calls or direct meetings with people involved. Shinji Higuchi, the Gooch doing again, some of his best work, mm-hmm. Kaneko and, and Kazunori Ito co-writing the screenplay this time. Right. But I am mm-hmm. certain between the three of them, like someone said, remember all those Ava episodes after Lilial. Right. What if we do that? Like, get, like, can we get there in this mm. movie? And I think they do. And a, and a lot of that is with Iris. Right. Specifically with Iris. There's a few moments where I was watching this and I was like, these are the live action Evangelion movies, you know? Right. Like they, these are the, the adaptations, not just of, like, oh, they're going to be monsters. There's going to be religious symbolism. It's going to be like connected to, you know, a uh, sort of teenage coming of age story. But in the cutting style, in the abrupt silences, the dream sequences, like the rhythm mm. of Ayana's, you know, flashback to her parents' death, flashback to the first movie and waking up is felt so similar to the rhythms of the dream sequences early on in Evangelion with Shinji waking up and remembering the first fight against Satchiel and, and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, like once it gets to the 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 end point of Ayana getting absorbed into the core of of Iris, it's like, oh yeah, we're just going direct directly into end of Evangelion territory here. Yeah, um, totally. Although, you know, to the point that we were kind of mentioning of like, there are even older precedents to something, like even something like saying like, oh, you know. There's a lineage here. Sometimes I think we, we we are quick to not acknowledge how much Akira is as much of a sort of fundamental text here on the, these kind of teen stories, specifically the sort of like relationship built out of resentment, seeking power from a place of powerlessness 
and like striking back at a society that there's kind of this uh, Tetsuo Kaneda kind of relationship in an abstract sense between Atsagi and Ayana, even though they're, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I, you know, it's strange that I never drew that line before, but I don't think I'm ever going to be able to undraw that line in my mind You're, I mean, you are correct more specifically with Ayana, but there's definitely a Tetsuo-ness yeah. to her right. in, a, in a less screamy, cloak-wearing-y kind of way. But the sort of giving of yourself over to something that you don't understand for a kind of like selfish, power-hungry reason, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. kind of literally losing your humanity in the process is, I think, a similar arc. That is distinctly not the same thing that's happening in End of Evangelion, but rhymes very well with like Shinji's growing nihilism and sort of myopic vision, his inability to see the way that his actions affect others, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know? It's, it's alienating him from society. Right. Right. One key difference, though, I think, and this is when I watched it this time, I think one of the most fascinating parts of the film. She doesn't like she ha- the other piece of her intimate relationship with Iris is that she raises the kaiju. Like right. you get a kind of a long time with cute baby Iris. Mhm. And Still like kind of scary and like weird but cute. Yeah. Like makes little mewing noises and has like, you know, big old thresher shark eyes. Like yeah, mm-hmm. you 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 want to take care of this thing. Likes to snuggle. Like mm-hmm. I, Iris is like very immediately like with her, like, no, 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 you're mom. I want to like cuddle up to mom, which you never get that in Evangelion. You never get that in Akira. And that adds almost a, um, it's almost like there's like a Spielberginess to it. Yeah. Right. It's evil ET, you know, like it is evil ET, especially with like the other kid comes in and like those moments where they're trying to feed Iris feel like E.T. with the M&Ms mm-hmm. almost. And you wonder, oh, is this going to be like a cute, good kaiju? Is everyone wrong about these like myths about like the demon that's sealed in this temple is going <laughs> right. to destroy the world? Don't wake the demon. And it's like, <laughs> well, it's a big, cute slug thing. Mm-hmm. This doesn't look so bad it's not so bad and then the razor blade comes out of the tentacle and it sucks the cat food out of the fucking tin you're like oh it's a vampire right uh great Uh, another sort of angle to that kind of jumping off your the spielberg comparison is the way that this movie kind of plays with the like city kid suddenly shunted off to the suburbs out into the countryside motif, you know, totally, which, you know, if you're uh, listening to this, you might also be a fan of action button. Uh, Tim Rogers, I mentioned in at least one of the other previous episodes here, he, like his most recent several. review. Yeah, several. I, you know, m- maybe I should have a, a swear jar or something, but the last game he reviewed was Boku no Natsuyasumi, which is sort of a like slice of life, game about this same kind of phenomenon of like the city kids going out to the countryside for summer. This is the same sort of story archetype that like Totoro is based off of, uh, for example. And so I think there's kind of also not just an evil ET thing here, but also kind of like 
that the, the sort of dark gritty version of Totoro that, you know, edgelords on Tumblr used to describe. This is kind right. of that like this yeah. kid with like the darkness of actually having like her family destroyed goes to the, uh, the countryside is alienated from her peers. You know, there's like the bullies that bully her into um, going into the shrine in the first place. I just want to say this is really critical to her character because like she's so close to a totally unlovable protagonist, mm-hmm. but very critically, she's not being bullied. Her oh. little brother is being bullied, right? She oh, goes into this is the so true. Yes. I, yeah. 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 She, she cares about her little brother and goes into the shrine to be like, do not, if I go into the shrine, will you stop fucking with my little brother mm-hmm. and the bully cheerleaders, which is again, very, the craft, right? Like right. you're, you're right. This is totally a Jennifer's body type scenario, right? Where they're like, we'll consider mm-hmm. not bullying your little brother, weird orphan girl. If you go into the demon hole, right? right. And that's also a relationship that, that Elliot has with ET, right? Little, little drew Barrymore, like so much of, of that movie rests on, he loves ET, but he also loves drew Barrymore. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think the version of this movie where the little brother as like almost non-existent as he is, isn't part of the movie is, I think a much worse film. I just wanted to no. I, that's, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to bring that out. That's a very, very good reading. Another thing it has in common with Totoro, by the way, is mm-hmm. like there's mm-hmm. the younger sibling uh, as part of the, you know, who isn't quite as, as aware of the situation as the older sibling. And yeah, like there's something about the way, like kind of all drawing back to the, what you discussed about the sort of uncomfortable sexuality at play is like, there's the degree to which this is a, coming of age story it is about like a a girl uh embracing a kind of power in order to like strike back at society which is sort of linked visually in this case and you know to also like her gaining her own sense of control over her sexuality you know Mm -hmm. like i think it's supposed to evoke that same kind of sensation of like it reminded me a bit of thirst. I know I'm throwing a lot of illusions at the wall, but that same kind of, I think it's, it's meant to sort of stir up your feelings by hearkening to that same kind of idea of like fear of female sexuality or, you know, fear of like female sexuality, uh, directed into dark and, uh, resentful patterns, you know, or something like that. Like it's a dark motherhood that she, she takes on raising this monster, you know, as she's like coming of age, she becomes like a sinister mother. And then in its own way, it's like almost a love triangle between her and Iris and the Mm -hmm. kid with the sword, whose name I keep forgetting. Um, the, the Moribe Moribe, 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 Moribe clan, you know, the, the youngest member of, uh, the, the people that are supposed to stop this thing, you know? Right. That is a, an interesting scene. Him with his grandma, his grandma's like, you know, when I was, it's now time that you understand that our family's charge is to stop the demon from ever getting out. Whatever right. you do, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Handled with like such like a light they don't make a big deal of it. They're just like, yeah, this happens in the world. This is like part of the story, you know, just go with it. You know, mm-hmm. his, he does a very good, uncomfortable face with his grandma. Like, Hmm, suppose someone did wake up the demon. Right. <laughs> what, 
what then, does that do? And she's like, hmm, bad shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, just bad, mostly. <laughs> Slow zoom out of his eyes. He's like, uh-huh. <laughs> well, I fucked this up so bad. <laughs> so... Yeah. Just to kind of go back uh, again to, to draw on that idea of like the inverted, the dark version of the relationship. I feel like we've done a pretty good job of explaining what Ayana's psych psychology is and the way that it like pushes the plot forward here. But just to sort of draw out the way that her relationship with Iris is also kind of like an inversion of the relationship between Atsagi and Gamera is that Iris is parasitic. Yeah, it wants to, like, not just mentally, which is, like, the difference between, like, Asagi and Gamera, like, they're, they're, like, peas in a pod, but Mm -hmm. there's, like, they never touch. In none of the movies does she ever, like, make physical contact with Gamera. I think they, like, look each other in the eye, like, twice. Yeah, at, like, the end of each movie, basically, like, at the end of the first movie and then when Gamera is revived in the second one. But the crucial thing there is that you know, Atsagi is able to feel Gamera's pain and understand Gamera's thoughts, but they're not controlling each other. They just mm-hmm. empathize with each other. You know, mm-hmm. there's an em- empathetic relationship. Whereas uh, I think the relationship between Ayana and Iris is like this sort of, again, parasitic. The fact that it literally sucks the life out of things, you know, it mm-hmm. is this kind of consuming creature. Mm-hmm. Um, that and it wants to it wants to like absorb they make this very clear right They're like its end goal is first to absorb her completely mm-hmm. and somehow that will make it strong enough to kill Gamera is right. like the thought it's again it's it's a very sort of like shorthanded version of the Shinji's uh subs like sub- being subsumed into unit one giving him the power to defeat uh, zero well, right? Right. Uh, totally. It, it's the idea of like combining the human with this kind of divine creature creates, you know, the, the ultimate life form. Well, I'm glad we underlined all that. I think all of that's true, I, but going back to the motherhood for a second, mm-hmm. I had an interesting thought toward the end of this because they're like, there's like some characters that we haven't brought up who are s- less important, but I think like, also very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way they're all kind of not failed mothers, but like w- women who are having difficulty finding a place for them in society, a non-traditional place for them in society. Right. Uh-huh. So if you're like one of them's Nagamine, the ornithologist, mm-hmm. right. Who's in a lot of this movie, I missed her, by the way. Like, in watching this movie after having seen Gamera 2 and talking about it with you, I was like, she was such a good part of the first one. Bringing her back and foregrounding her was, I think, a really smart narrative choice, even mm-hmm. if the character doesn't do that much, because she's a great audience stand-in. Well, I think what she does do is also really crucial to kind of and the, the bigger themes and the ultimate emotional payoff of the movie, right? Like, right. The, the way that she and the other uh, main older character that gets brought back. So it's Atsagi, Osako and uh, Nagamine are the characters that get brought back from the first movie. And specifically in the way that she is, her role in the movie is to show care to other people, you know, like saying like, Oh, if that was my friend, 
it just made me happy to even think that I saw him because I like my friends so much. And this right. sort of rehabilitation of Osako, who's kind of fallen outside of society. And she's able to also then at the end of the movie give care to Ayana. And that's the kind of cathartic moment is what separates. I don't know. I can, I can go, I will get to this, but continue with what you're, you're talking about. Like the, the, the positive quality of having her back in the movie, you know, the, the positive quality of having her back is I, is not just as an audience stand in for me, but Mm -hmm. also you get this brief, but really fascinating uh, bit of her navigating the, like the post gamma government. Mm -hmm. It seems like such a disconnected part of this. Like, it seems like it's in a different movie. Most of this movie is like an in, is like a folk horror movie, right? right. Yeah, it's yeah. like this super intimate. It's woodsy. It's all at dusk. It's like these kids and and the parasite. What are they gonna do? Mm-hmm. And then the opposite end of that is like you've got her navigating these rooms full of people reading fucking forms in bad fluorescent lighting mm-hmm. and she does a lot like with her, not with her words, but with her body language and her face to just kind of suggest that she's like, I don't like this. I don't like what I'm doing. I don't like that. I'm gauss girl. Why is this? (laughs) Why is this my life? And like, I think the apotheosis of that is she winds up in a fucking boardroom next to Saito from the first movie. Right. Yeah. He also makes a brief appearance again. And he's even creepier than last time. And like, you get this sense where she's like, God, is this where my life has led me? Mm -hmm. I'm stuck in a boardroom with this greasy fucking loser who also doesn't want to be here. Right. Yeah. Right. This is, there's a sense of like, everyone is now trapped in a really shitty version of their lives, you know? Right. Right. Like the status quo, the the deal that has now been struck with Gamera sucks for everyone. Gamera yeah. doesn't like it. No one fucking likes it. Mm-hmm. And and she's like, I'm consigned to playing weird cryptic Dreamcast games with this <laughs> incel dude and being in boardrooms with this guy who really seems like a fucking perv. Um so I think she's, she's, I, I appreciate her like struggle to like find a place yeah. for herself. Right. Mm. And also in that boardroom, um, you meet Mito Asakura, who's like her, she, we don't talk about, like, we haven't talked about, um, Mito much, but Mito's like the anti her, right? right. She yeah. also has an evil mirror. Mm-hmm. Right. And her, her evil mirror is this super religious character who it gets pointed out to at the end that it's like your like quest to be like a religious woman in the modern era of Japan is likewise a failure. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's interesting to me that like the basic end of the film is these four women, two of whom are opposites watching the Kaiju fight and having their worldviews kind of like pose friction with one another. Right. right? And that's, so, that's what I wanted to get at. What do you make of that character? Like the priestess? Cause like the thing that you mentioned early on about like this being revelation, it like kind of became clear that she's sort of the horror Babylon in a way. Right. It's yeah. The, the idea is she, she's part of a, a, like an, an ancient anti gamma cult, but I never quite understood like what the cult's origins were partially because like the game designer guy, I just like couldn't stand him. 
he he was such a buzzkill for me in this movie and like i could not follow what the fuck he was talking about when he was like doing his exposition dumps at all bold choice to have jp from grandma's boy be one of the primary antagonists <laughs> uh and also super queer coded which is strange mm-hmm. but with regard to mito the final fight in this movie takes place in kyoto right kyoto is the the capital of the shinto I don't want to say religion, but let's say like spiritual tradition mm-hmm. in Japan. My understanding is many Shinto people would not identify themselves as quote unquote religious, right? But it's a spiritual tradition that has continued into the modern era. See anime, like there's a lot, like there is a trope of the modern person who's still trying to uphold the Shinto traditions. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the big example of this, I think is like sailor Mars. Right. Okay. Um, or the main character in Inuyasha, like gal from Inuyasha who says sit boy is like the same archetype. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think you could argue that like, Asagi is also supposed to kind of fit into this mold as this like modern person. Who's the steward of ancient wisdom mm-hmm. of a time when we were at peace with nature. Right. 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 Of a, of a, this is a very, like, that's a very Miyazaki idea, right? Like, Oh, we used to have harmony with nature and now we don't. And it's the cause of our suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, my, my interpretation of Mito is that Mito someone who's clung on to all the bad parts of the old religion, right? Like she's like cryptically quoting the I Ching, instead mm-hmm. of like cryptically quoting the Bible. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and her like adherence to religious tradition has like blinded her to the obvious fact of the day. Right. Like she's like quoting the I Ching and she's like, the shell is a vessel for an evil spirit. It must be cleansed from the earth. And her interpretation of that is, I got to kill fucking Gamera. Right. right? And yeah. then I will be a real, I will be a real high priestess is mm-hmm. like her interpretation of that. Right. When like the movie is like saying to her and, and even I think Karada says to her too, it's like, you're, you're a fucking idiot. Like this is a job for young people. You missed your shot mm-hmm. to be like the religious queen. So another kind it, of like, Reminds you of Mitsuko's, uh, Ritsuko's mother from Evangelion a bit. There's this kind of idea of like the woman who's aged out of relevance to this particular uh, world, you know. Mm-hmm. The danger um, of the weird religious conservative. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I, I, there must be like Shinto religious conservatives. That must be. A th- Maybe there are people who like. I don't know if there are mega churches in Japan. If they are, they're probably church churches, but I don't know. Maybe there's an auditorium somewhere where there's people right now, uh, on Twitch screaming about the I Ching. (laughs) Um, so then what do we make of, uh, Karuta, like Karuta, like what, what, what's his deal? What, what is his motivation exactly? It's sort of implied that he worked for the government, but is he actually just a rogue agent? Is he just like a nihilist? What's going on there? He, I look, I can't put a beat on that character either. He definitely has like flash. He's like kind of flashy in his like, okay, 
he is the most Molgoth character in the fucking movie. Like, yeah, he's straight sure. up dressed. He's straight up dressed like been too hot topic before this shoot with his mm-hmm. little his little like ring on his <laughs> finger that he's always putting on his mouth. Homeboy has style. My interpretation of this is that he so he was a genius game designer, and then his his games are disaster simulators that work so well. He does get hired by the government Mm -hmm. and that's how he gets hooked up with Mito and they together like form this idea that like destroying Gamera is like the way for the, the way for humanity to be the future. And his worldview is not well drawn, but my interpretation of that character is he's sort of saying the, the Gauss exists to put mankind back in its place right it's a sort of malthusian thing like we need the gauss to like limit humanity ultimately and like curb the population right he's his sort of he says reset button right which is why he's like he's a game developer like the implication is like he's got this arrogant worldview that reality can be simulated perfectly Mm -hmm. and he he's like i'm here to make sure the reset button gets pushed because me as a as like a simulation guy, I know the simulations out of control. Right? right. And he's like, the thing that keeps the reset button from being pushed is Gamera. So I'm here to make sure Gamera dies. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, they kind of lean into the degree to which he like has that sort of linguistic separation from reality, you know, mm-hmm. like when he finally does die, his last words are, Oh, this looks like danger, you know, right. Is how it's translated. And I, I would imagine that that was, uh, there's something intentionally sort of like passive voice about his engagement with reality that's being uh, articulated there. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's also clearly like a true misanthrope, right? Yeah, like yeah. Mito's his counterpart. Mito gets killed and he's like, well, that's what death looks of, like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. What did you think was going to happen? Mm-hmm dummy and then and then he gets flattened too because of course you are you're in a building next to kaiju's fighting right <laughs> why aren't why aren't you running for your life too you fucking ding dong right. yeah you weren't in the first movie you're not gonna make it out alive like <laughs> <laughs> that no, guy's that, not no. gonna be in gamera four <laughs> there won't be one no i i i wish nagamine had like said to him like you weren't here for the first one. Like, <laughs> you're not getting out of this. That she she lacks a good uh, a good one liner there. It's cool that there are more like human antagonists because this is a more human movie. Mm-hmm. I think the kaiju stuff here. First of all, I think it looks fucking dope. Whenever it's not full CG, yes, uh, that would be my my big asterisk kind of on the uh, the aesthetic experience of this whole movie. But. Uh, CG has not aged well. Yeah. However, I think there's less kaiju stuff in this by a wide margin. Any of the other ones. Yeah, yeah. This is like a longer movie that has exact. I think base. you could boil it down to there are two for real action sequences. There's like the one where Iris is just sort of like, you know, casually eliminates the JSDF that I feel like is not really worth, not really much to that one. But otherwise, there looks good, though. I like it. It's I think cool. it's like well done. It, it gives you the sense of, you know, scale and like horror, you know, the way that it cuts kind of before you can see really what it is that Iris is doing to them is like a good, horrific kind of touch, you know, mm-hmm. uh, also very nope-esque, actually, now that I think about it, mm-hmm. uh, similar to Jupe's final ride. 
so there's the the big sequence early on the Shibuya like terrorist attack pretty much like I think there's something to the the way that like early on in the movie they're talking about like it's been like a long pause since anyone's seen Gamera it's been like years since attack of Legion it's just kind of like end of history moment there's this lull and then suddenly it's worldwide chaos you know isolated single incidents of sudden unexpected violence and right. this movie is kind of predicting the age of terrorism as like it, it the does. world order, you know? Um, right. It's weirdly prescient. So Gamera is immediately shrouded in dark. Like he's shrouded in like, he's not lit well in this movie, which I think is an intentional choice because he's, he's obscured and inscrutable and does not give a fuck about human life for the most part. You know, there's there's something almost like more Old Testament about the fact that he does protect a single child, you know. Right. But that only makes his actions, instead of sh- showing that as like an act of empathy towards humanity, it's like, that's the deal. You know, I protect, I protect children, but I do not care about people. And instead right. of that making him more relatable, it actually makes him like harder to understand harder to empathize with because it's just this sort of arbitrary system of rules that he operates by that human humans have no say in and right there's this really telling shot that i really really loved when he like shoots a fireball and it destroys the shibuya train station and famously there's this dog of this like you know there's this statue of a dog that like waited for its owner for you know days and days and days and days and continue to wait, wait even after is this correct it waited even after the owner died i believe is the story and yes every day he goes to the train station waits for his master to come back I, yes that right. and you do see that statue go up in flames, flames. yeah gamera is not your loyal dog he is not humanity's pet you know it is a really pointed little visual image i, I was like so glad that was in there because it obviously like the rest of the, the horrific violence of like people being like blown up into the air from all of the fireballs, Gamera, like point blank killing people without, you know, blinking an eye, all that kind of stuff is like horrific in its own right. But just to kind of like, you know, put the little bow on it with this little visual metaphor, I thought was like a really great filmmaking choice. Yeah. I, I agree completely. You're, you're dead on with that symbolism. I know for a fact that that statue was an intentional choice. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about that in one of the American critics in the commentary on the version I have brings that up. I love that sequence in, in part because it does have this like re the movie in general does, but that, that scene also has this like renewed emphasis on like the human cost. Mm hmm of this world. And that's, and that's also something I think kind of Ava ish and something that seemed like when I saw this movie, the first, like a breath of fresh air compared to the Heisei Godzilla movies, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, this is like, like there's a mortality cost. Every time one of these dudes in the suits takes a step, you can't forget that. Right. right? That, that like lends a necessary realism to swallowing the fantasy element to this that I love that shot of like the people getting swept up in the backdraft of like the fireballs going off is not fucking around. And one of the indelible images in this movie for me is burn ward gauss. Like the gauss that doesn't die all the way and camera has to land to point blanket that I love the build up to that too, 
because they play some games with you on exactly right. the setup for that sequence because it's like they they're bouncing around to a bunch of different locations. You know, there's something burning and falling from the sky, but you don't know how big it is yet. <laughs> right <laughs> and the way that they finally reveal it is like oh shit it's like oh man i love that i love the way that they're able to sort of like still in the third movie find ways to keep you guessing and keep like withholding information until the last moment you know by now you know gamera so well but they still find ways to like impose that sense of scale on you in a way that like matters even if you're used to seeing these movies by now, which is oh man, really masterful stuff. All of, all of the Gamera movies do this, but more than any of the other ones, I think this one shows off Shineko's horror film chops. Oh yeah. 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 It's been all been building up to this movie in that way. In that sense. I, I, I think completely. And that's a lot of that is like, not just with the Iris stuff and like the, you know, every time you see Iris before the final fight, but after he's sort of in his second evolution, mm-hmm. right? He's got his like shorter, he's got cute snail Iris and then bigger in the woods, but with armor, right? Iris. And then finally like flying Kaiju Iris, right? Mm-hmm. But like everything in that middle step, there's all the, the mummified victims, you know? Right. There's, there's that one shot of the first time you see full armor Iris standing with the tentacles and the practical. The one on the ground is a practical effect that makes me so happy with mm-hmm. the, the corpses around it. Right. That's a horror moment. That's something like they're not going to do in a Godzilla. And the fact that it, it, again, ties into that sort of like that gross like hentai-ish sexual body horror kind of stuff there, you know? With right. Like, Ayana being like, Oh, I'm, I'm so hot. And like starting to like take off her clothes as he like envelops her. Uh, and then her mm-hmm. being like, you know, literally has his, you know, tentacles inside of her back during that horrific sequence back in the shrine. It's just like, Ooh, yeah, really, like really spooky, genuinely creepy stuff. The kind of stuff that you, you don't, this movie would be rated PG 13. Mm hmm in America. Right. But that's something that you don't, it would be hyper transgressive for anyone in like uh, the American horror idiom to even like begin to, to attempt that. Right. Like attempting something like that puts you on like direct to shutter. Yeah. (laughs) Jordan Peele doesn't get to not that Jordan Peele would want to, but Jordan Peele doesn't get to do the, all right. And here I'm putting the, I'm encasing my heroin in amniotic fluid and filling her full of tentacles. Right. Even if it's very like tasteful, there's nothing genital explicitly. Everyone's clothed. Right. Right. Like even, even doing that, you you can't do that with like a large studio picture. Only the alien movies get close, you know? Uh, like I remember, mm-hmm. you know, former podcast guest, Emily Yoshida writing about um, the fifth alien movie, alien. I want to say revelations because all these movies are named fucking revelations or revolutions or resurrections, you know, all this, you know, fourth uh, one's resurrection. Prometheus right. is, there's no xenomorphs in it, but Prometheus mm. is sort of alien five. So and then, then alien covenant covenant, alien covenant. There's a great piece where Emily Yoshida talks about alien covenant and the way that these sort of like chest burster sequences and they're increasing elaborateness are one of the few places where you can find like eroticism in modern genre movies anymore. Right. Uh, and I think like the sort of the, you know, the Giger influence and the, the way that, you know, we talked about 
uh, aliens being a particular influence on attack of Legion. I think there's, there's some sort of uh residual ooky gross, you know, body horror shared DNA between the, the alien franchise and the kind of thing that uh, you're right. Otherwise just d- would only could only happen in one of these movies and not in an American horror movie. And, and the gamma design too is well, not body horror. Like they, they do underline like, the, like the, the plot idea, right. Is that, after using like the mana beam against Legion Gamera's relationship to Asagi is severed mm-hmm. and ergo Gamera's relationship of compassionate toward humanity is also severed. And he, he reflects that change physically and you get like what I guess I'll call grim dark Gamera. <laughs> right. Yeah. L- literal edge Lord Gamera razor blades on everything. Weird extra fingers. Mm hmm. Gamera, like he he looks mutated. He looks almost Gigeresque, and and you're you're right that he's not well illuminated. You never see this Gamera in the day, right? Which is a huge difference from the first two movies. You get plenty of Iris in broad daylight. Never mm-hmm. Gamera in this movie, mm-hmm. and they love these shots where the background is black. His scales are almost totally black, but you do see the the contrast. And the only white thing is the teeth and the tusks, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those those shots to me have to be like direct references to the Xenomorph and Alien one. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like that is that is the way that Ridley Scott framed H.R. Giger's suit in a lot of those money shots. We should talk about Gamera's what it means for Gamera's connection to be severed from humanity, because I think this movie kind of walks a very interesting line for what it actually means ultimately in the end. You know, so the the final confrontation, the other big action sequence is the, you know, it all leads up to the confrontation between Iris and Gamera in Kyoto. And uh, even though I don't like the CGI for the most part, that one panning shot where it pans from Gamera through the fire to Iris and then through the fire again to Ayana is just very cool, very cool stuff. So yeah, we get this whole action sequence that ultimately Gamera gets brutally owned yet again in even more Christ-like fashion this time. If it wasn't heavy-handed enough the last time. Right. Um, and it's unclear why he's fighting Iris. Like, it's not stated. You know, there's there's no explanation given for his actions, at least initially. He just arrives is like, yep, time to go. Like, time to fight this motherfucker. And the way that it ultimately sort of pans out is that, like, Gamera may not be connected to human beings and he may not ever explain himself, but there's he he's not obligated to protect humanity but he does so out of his own free will is kind of ultimately where it ends up right he still is he still protects the children which means that he saves ayana from iris ultimately and he you know the, the movie ends with him like stomping off to to fight the gauss that are about to storm japan and it makes it clear like he he is not connected to humanity but he does act on behalf of humanity for his own reasons, you know? Right. And my favorite, my favorite moment during that whole sequence is after, you know, Ayana has been ripped out of the entry plug basically. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it, you know, has been, you know, there's that great shot of, again, another like grim, dark gamma sequence of him looming over Nagamine giving uh, Ayana CPR, which is Mm -hmm. one of those images where you're like, you can't just show this to someone and say, this is beautiful. 
but in this moment, this is really beautiful. (laughs) Right. This giant turtle looming over two humans is like a really powerful experience. Like he's, you know, and she comes back and asks, why did you save me? And you get just Gamera sounds, you know, it's the silence of Gamera. Like is (laughs) the, the sort of haunting theme of the movie is like, there are, if there are, if these, you know, sort of divine creatures, like you, you'll never understand them. They're beyond your understanding to understand why Gamera does what Gamera does at this point. It's a, it's a literally sublime experience, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's, and, and I think recapturing that majesty is powerful in that, in that moment. And, and that is an interesting contrast to Iris, because while it's right, you, you don't, Gamera never gets a chance to explain himself. And, and the movie is like very clear uh, with Asagi saying, I don't know what he's thinking right. anymore. I cannot explain Jack. Right. Did right? he, the, the line in at least the way it's translated in subtitles is, did he speak to you? No, but I understood. And it's like, that is a, a, a very like fate religious expression about Gamera, you know, in this movie. Right. I, I agree completely. And in, in contrast, Iris's motivations are very personal mm-hmm. and like instantly understandable and relatable. Like Ayana just says it out fucking loud. She's like, Gamera killed all of Iris's predecessors. Right. Just like he killed all my parents. That's why we're, that's why we're a couple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. This is like what we got. We're like trauma bonded. Yeah. Right? Yes. It's like, yes. And it's like, it's like, Iris is not, is not like the Gauss is not here to wipe mankind out. That's not Iris's thing. Iris just wants Gamera dead. Just like I just want Gamera dead. And it's like, really, it's like the, the purity of that animosity is compelling. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like what I like about the, the difference between those two reactions is it underlines that. This is an interesting cr- critique of revenge, right? Yes. But like yes, go the on. critique is that it's like revenge is petty. It's like you're, this is a really shallow motivation for like a divine being to have. And it eats you, right? It eats you. It devours your ability to see clearly, right? Like, right. So Ayana is an orphan who by unleashing Iris creates another orphan, right? Right. Gamera destroyed part of Tokyo, which then creates this other situation where Iris destroys Kyoto, you know, right. One ruined home creates another ruined home. It's this perpetuation that literally drains the life out of its host. The more that you obsess over this single minded idea, you become blind to the consequences of your actions, you know, Mm -hmm. which is why. Ayana goes deadpan during the entire sequence where Iris is landing and just like lighting Kyoto on fire. Right. And and it's, it's killing Gamera too. Like Mm -hmm. that is like one of the powerful things about that. Like that, like last image is like, you know, underlining the Christ bit, right? But he has to blow his own hand off hand off. So another, another mirroring of the first movie, right? Like, Right. The Gauss that had to tear its own limb off to hurt Gamera. Gamera now has to do the same active sacrifice, essentially. Right. Exactly. And it's, it's, there's no more, the, the implication is like, there's no more resurrections. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, even though like his, his end move is a total ass pull. Oh, it's, if there is like, <laughs> if there's a weakness in those three movies that it, the last thing is always like out of nowhere. It's like, we never even hinted that this was 
on the table, but here it is. And we won't be coming back to it. Right. It's that thing, you know, that meme of like the owls and it's just like, I didn't know that owls could sit crisscross applesauce. And then someone like quote tweeting it being like, it's always something new with these motherfuckers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel about camera. It's like, Oh, I guess he could control and he has a fire punch move now. Like what a shirt, whatever. Like I'm not going to question this. If it uses my energy beam back on me, I can recontrol the energy beam <laughs> and use it as a fire punch. Right. Didn't you know that? Not only did I not know that, but none of the cryptic quotings that you have littered this <laughs> franchise with have hinted at this in the fucking slightest. Right. It's like you didn't have a finale plan. You're like, just do something cool, Shinji. Yeah, Gamera will win. We'll figure it out when it comes time for him to win, you know? Right. Just call the gooch. Be like, man, give him, just do something, do some neat anime bullshit. Right. I can do that. Uh, Haven't I always come through for you? Um, And he has. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you do get this sense. It's never, again, it never says this, but I understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. There's this sense at the end. It's like, there's no more ass pulls after this. There's no, there's no coming back to life after this. It's like, this is the, this is like the last stand. Right. Yeah. This is it. it. Like, this is the state of the world, you know, like, right. It doesn't necessarily matter who wins in that fight. It's like what life is in this post gamma world is like a state of terror. And the only way out is to care for another human being, you know? So exactly. This is, I, we mentioned in the the preamble, I don't know if it'll make it into the final episode, but we were talking about changes in perspective, right? Right. And there are like two major ones kind of both early in the movie. One is like the opening sequence of showing the first movie again, but from Ayana's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Like making you understand pre events that you'd seen previously that nothing has changed about those events, but who is watching them changes your understanding of them. And then right. I think the way that uh, Osaka Osako is um, represented in the movie is itself nothing new is being told to you, right? Like still the same guy, st- bumbling, you know, assistant detective in the first movie, works at a brewery in the second movie, and now is and homeless. now he's homeless, and now he's homeless. And the fact that they then just present what that means for a character's arc, like oh, we treated this guy as a joke up until this one point at this bar with these two characters where he just plainly states what his life is. And you then see from his perspective, this whole sequence is a tragedy, you know, and all it takes to rehabilitate him is for another person to say like, Hey, I care about you. You're important. And I don't want to see you suffer. Right. That's the act of such an important. Yes. Yes. It's a beautiful fucking moment. And with enough time, even like the dirtbag senator whose name escapes me at the moment, like he says, like, I don't believe there's a shot of him at his desk saying like Gamera isn't an enemy. And you look on his desk and there's a, a figurine of a turtle and there's a figurine of a whale like on his desk. And it's like, right. This guy who used to hate Gamera with enough time has learned to love Gamera. Right. So there's this right. idea that like, we don't have to be in opposition with each other all the time. We can care about one another and forgive ourselves and each other 
even in a world that is horrific and filled with violence. It's a, it's still a pessimistic fucking movie, but yeah, the, the way that it ultimately centers on like going back to human relations, going back to that sense of, you know, in that, in that sequence in the bar, uh, Osako says like, I went back to Tokyo to join, to be part of the crowd is the line that he uses. And I think that like that being that pairs so well with the way that I was talking about the attack of Legion about how it reduces humanity to just a crowd. This is almost him right. saying like, well, after, you know, after attack of Legion, after we lost our connection with Gamera, I subsumed myself back into the crowd and I lost everything, you know? And instead it's like, no, you are an individual that does have worth that does have value. This is like the way that you get through the existential crisis of the, of the second movie is by returning to caring about individual people. Yes. Yes. I mean, his, his arc is what's funny. Cause he's like a comedian. Like that actor is like a, was a beloved comedian mm-hmm. in Japan in the nineties. But like, I think if you examine that character's arc, as you said, it's in, it's incredibly tragic. And there is a dramatic irony of him saying, I came to Tokyo to, to vanish, mm-hmm. to, to, I think the obvious interpretation there is like to die, right? To stop being right? part of the world, to fade into non-individuality, you know. Mm-hmm. And but by doing that is is the first time in a long time he's seen, mm-hmm. right? Because even in Attack of Legion, like none of the other characters except the other guard see him. Like when they when the main characters interact with him, he's on a screen. Right. He's become subjected. He is a subject right. of a film. Right. He's been dehumanized. Right. And I do think Attack of Legion is in its own way, like has some is has like this layer of like alienation and dehumanization to it. And this is like the rehumanizing film, even if it is dark. Like, I I get the I, I get the feeling that like either Ito or Kaneko, my guess is probably Kaneko, like probably like had some rough shit go on between like 1995 and 1999. Like it, it seems like like the end of guardian of the universe is so like, is so positive. It's kind of corny. Right. Yeah. And this is a movie made by someone who like, it doesn't feel capable of that kind of like overt optimism anymore. I think it's like the way that we talked about in the first episode, the way like, Oh fuck, do I have to do a Gamera movie? Right. You know, and mm-hmm. having to deal with like, well, we know he cares for kids. It's like this movie finally feels like him uh, kind of getting to the point where he can say like, this is the my this is my camera, you know? Right. Where what if the only thing he cares about is protecting children? His kids. You know, like and this, this is my, like the horror director coming out and finally having the reins to say like, I want to tell a really fucking dark story that happens to involve a giant flying turtle you know, and right. this is, it, it takes this amount of legwork to get you to the place where you can feel how horrible it would be to live in this world, you know? Right. But even then, and then like that, getting to that level of darkness allows him to deliver an actually hopeful or like actually, you know, meaningful and like heartfelt message, uh, with the appropriate stakes. Right. And, and, and him looking, it it's, now that you're saying this, I'm just having a thought, mm-hmm. but I, I'm realizing now that like we talked about Ayana as the anti Asagi, by the way, it's, it's just worth here to point out that I think 
I, Maeda and Aoko Fujitani do, do really great with these characters. I love them on screen together. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of them are working actors anymore. And that seems like a shame, but if this is your whole career, good for you. Right. Which is, it, it kind of, it kind of like is for them a little bit. This, like these are the movies they're fucking known for. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you think of Ayana as is, isn't just the anti Asagi, it's this director's critique of Asagi from the first movie, mm-hmm. I think is like sort of a, sort of a Pollyanna. And I'm thinking specifically about it because it is a really Ava E moment, but I think it is like one of the most emotional moments in the film is when she finally does get absorbed by Iris the last time right. completely. And she doesn't, she, she winds up in her old apartment. Like right. the return to the apartment is telling. And then it's only when she's in like, like the Lilial anti-space, mm-hmm. the apartment that she gets Iris's perspective events. And it, it's really telling for me when she's, she's watching from, from Iris's eyes, Iris murder her family. Mm-hmm. And she says, Iris, did you kill everybody? And she says, maybe I did. Right. Yeah. It's it's like Iris is acting out the animosity she felt for her foster parent for her like I think it's her aunt and uncle. Right. I think it's supposed to be like her 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 extended family. It is, yeah. Right? That's what was missing from Garden of the Universe. Even though I think Garden of the Universe is kind of like almost a more perfect film structurally, what's missing from it is is that perspective of like what if I am responsible for like the deaths of people I care about. Right. This is actually, this is another case of like the way that this movie flips perspective on things we've already seen from the first two movies. It also flips her perspective of her own experience. It grants her the ability to see clearly again, you know, and that's kind of like ultimately your point, like the knife hitting her allows her to review events that she knows has happened, but from her own, from a new perspective and like, regain the ability to see like the consequences of her actions. Yeah. 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 Very. I reminded me a lot of the, you know, the, like once third impact starts and it, it's Shinji again in you know, the kitchen with Oscar, you know, and this acting out of like this sort of primal act of violence that stands in for the violence being inflicted upon all of humanity. You know, it's the same right. thing of like Ayana's destruction of her family because of the consuming rage and vengeance that she has. You know, it's it's right. suddenly it's setting it in this intimate, you know, domestic setting again after taking it and expressing it in this grand operatic like, you know, kaiju setting that same sort of balance of both, you know. And, and that's what and if I think like we're sliding into home. So here's here's my take on it. Mm-hmm. Right. You are correct. I'm going to, I'm going to finish the circuit for you. That is what these films get right. That's so, and I love Kaiju Ega, but like a lot of those movies are not as films. Good. I think this trilogy is like as a trilogy. Good. I think all three of these films are as films. Good. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're good is because they're able to take that like huge pantomime of like the sci-fi giant divine beast violence and recontextualize it as something like intimate and relatable yeah. to you as a fucking person mm-hmm. and, without and, being cloying or manipulative or cheap no. about how they get you there. Exactly. Egg. 
fucking exactly. It's good to revisit this movie. Yeah. It's not. Okay. So now I got to ask, cause I think we've closed the circuit, but now, now we gotta, now I gotta help get your perspective mm-hmm. of the, of the three. How do you, how do you contextualize those with the other two in terms of like, do you like this one? I do. Or like, how do you, how do you feel about it? I would say with, relevant of the other two. Sure. I, I would say that my favorite is attack of Legion. Okay. I would say that this is my second favorite. Oh, even though I think it is a, a bit, messier i love the ideas at play i love the human story i love the fact that it's this like fish out of water coming of age horror movie thing i think it's like the fact that i didn't even realize how little kaiju there were in the movie for so long and it still had me hooked and entertained for a character that had not even appeared in the first two movies i think this movie has a lot going for it and i would say the third one is my least favorite but in by is by no means a bad movie it's just its ambitions are were less surprising to me. They were they were it's a very it's a really good kaiju movie. And I would say probably one of the better ones that I've seen of the limited number that I've seen. But it has it just a smaller scope for the kind of things it's going for. Um, and I, I have a lot of fun with it. But when I when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is just like this is good. But the, these other two have given me a lot to chew over and have really like changed the way I think about the genre in, in a really satisfying and uh, um, thought provoking way. And it, it makes me really excited to see all of the various things you can do, you know, with, with giant, like pe- people in giant suits that pretend to be <laughs> monsters and knock buildings over like this. The, the, the <laughs> second two movies really took me somewhere with that idea. And I, I can't wait to now like dive into the, the rest of the canon. I'm, I'm happy to, I'm really happy to hear that because it's, it's a weird, it's a weird subculture, but it's one that I'm happy to like share. I'm happy to share what I feel to be like the cream of the crop Mm -hmm. with, with people who like may otherwise look like askance at it because I don't think it's, I don't think that's fair. Like, I think, I think these films ought to this trilogy, but like, yeah, I think the last two in a certain way, like deserve greater esteem in general mm-hmm. in, in America, may, maybe like, out, like I think these have an appeal that a lot of the Godzilla films don't. Yeah. I would recommend this movie in particular to a bunch of people that I would not previously have thought I would recommend a Kaiju movie to, uh, right. for reasons that I think I've made ev- like evidently clear, but yeah, I, this movie it's clearly it's it's tapped into something else and it really does deserve a bigger audience. Sick. Well, it's worth noting. Let me just give like the little, the little history bump at the end, mm-hmm. just give you some ideas. Right. So they never do. They never do finish. They never do a fourth. Mm-hmm. The storyline ends on a cliffhanger. We didn't even really talk. It ends on a cliffhanger. I just like that right? as like kind of a poetic, you know, Almost like a, the way that like a, a Mishima story just kind of cuts off at the end or something like that, you know? Yeah, I, me too. I never personally wanted a fourth one. There were no plans to do a fourth one initially, but weirdly what, what happened was there were plans to, this one was such a success. So Gamera 2 did not perform to expectations, mm, mm-hmm. which is part of why it took them so long to do this one. And as you can tell, this one actually had a, I think a lower budget. Yeah. I was wondering about that. It, it seems like yeah. the second one, they kind of like went whole hog with a lot of budget stuff that th- then didn't quite pay off. Is the vibe. Sure. 
that's a that's that's about right this one's this one's a more reined in there's more cg it's but but this one performed really well at the box office mm. but it seems like everyone was sort of burned out at the end of it yeah so the other critical thing that happens is this is the year after the american godzilla movie uh, uh-huh which did really well at the box office but was not loved right go into that later but there was briefly plans to do Godzilla versus Gamera as Gamera four without any of the people from the first three involved. Uh That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. And what happens is like the bones of that script that were made to get remade in 2006 as a movie called Gamera, the brave it's awful. (laughs) It's, it's, it's God. It's God awful. It's fucking terrible. It's super kiddie, super immature. It's everything that like these got away from, from the classic ones. That one's like, it feels like the studio getting the reins back and being like, no, 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 no more of this maturity. (laughs) And then, so like, but after that, Godzilla fans for years were like, let Kaneko do a Godzilla movie. Let Kaneko do a Godzilla movie. I think we've talked about this briefly, but I'll just like outline it here. He doesn't initially do a Godzilla movie. He moves to Toho does a movie about pyrokinesis mm-hmm. teenage girls with pyrokinesis. Oh, so another which, kind of Stephen King thing here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was about to say it's, it's funny that you tapped into the cariness because he basically does like an unlicensed version of Firestarter, uh-huh. um, which I haven't seen, but I've always wanted to check out. I, I bet that's cool. Mm-hmm. It did well enough that they did let him do a Godzilla movie. Oh, really readily available on streaming. It's a one-off it's, the name is terrible. It's Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters, All Out Attack. That's a mouthful. The, na- the name sucks. The movie is really interesting. If you like Shin Godzilla, I think people who like see Shin Godzilla and love it owe it to themselves to check that one out. Okay. I think a lot of what makes Shin Godzilla great comes like Kaneko kind of piloted Interesting. in that movie. Okay. But obviously it doesn't Kaneko never directs another Kaiju movie. He does the two death note movies mm-hmm. and he's still doing like IP stuff. Poor guy. And now Shinji Higuchi is back with Hideki Anno and they just did Shin Ultraman. Right. Right. And so we all know, we all know how we all know how uh, that turned out. Kaneko got his shot. Didn't quite connect. Then Ano got the shot. It did connect. And now Ano and Higuchi have a blank check. Mm-hmm. And Kaneko's kind of, I think, real heads no, but unfairly forgotten. I'd love to see this guy get more respect. Seriously. Personally. Yes. Yeah. So is that a teaser that we will be talking about Shin Ultraman at some point in the near future? Uh, I'd love to do Shin Ultraman with you. I'd love to do Kaneko's Godzilla movie with you, but I feel like I've, I feel like I've like maybe Kaiju loaded. <laughs> yeah. Um, we I might feel like you need a break. break. <laughs> well, let me give you, let me give you a break. I think probably Shin Ultraman first, mm-hmm. but I don't know if that one's going to go on main, maybe on main, maybe on not. I don't know. It's interesting. I just saw it in theaters. I had a lot of fun. I haven't seen it yet, but plan to. So we'll figure that out. Yeah, I still need to catch up on the rest of Diamond is Unbreakable as well. So maybe saying that now on, uh, you know, before we're, we you know, we're operating with, with some lead time with these monthly episodes. So I might be able to do that in time for, uh, 
for a bonus episode that will arrive in your inboxes next month, but we will see. I would love that. <laughs> and if not, we'll find something else. Maybe we'll just talk about, maybe we'll just talk about video games for now. Right. <laughs> Very possible. All right. That kind of wraps it up for me. I don't know if you any, any last hits or are you all set for this one? Ian's a convert. One more success for me. The Heisei Gamera trilogy. It slaps. If you haven't seen it, what are you fucking waiting for? I don't shill for free for anybody, <laughs> but I'm doing it for Shusei Kaneko. All right. See you as the turtle flies, Joseph. Until next time. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs>